Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep the special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Denise. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for asking me, Michelle. Oh, my gosh. Um, Almost an hour to talk about myself, and I don't have to pay anyone. This is, like, awesome. Um, I am Denise. I am a compulsive overeater. Hi, Denise. Hi. I... I have to make some notes. I'm kind of overwhelmed on a, on a couple of levels. One, this is my first time back in a room in Los Angeles. Um, I was in different rooms in the summer in a different state, and it was really lovely, and it's just so nice to see familiar faces and, you know, new chairs. So it's just great. Um, so, um, you know, I, was, I had to make some notes because there's no way I could, I could possibly, you know, uh, fill in this much room without, and be coherent, so, um, and I was thinking about being a compulsive eater, and I was thinking about all the other things that I am, which are important, too, Uh, you know, I'm a wife, and I'm a mother, and I'm a writer, and um, as of lately, I'm a part-time woodworker, which um, means that I haven't been doing it long enough or enough time to lose any parts. So um, that's what I thought of. And then but it came back to being, fundamentally, I'm a compulsive overeater because that's the thing I've done most consistently. Um, that's the thing my mother bragged about, that she couldn't get enough bottles for me when, um, when she was in the hospital, when moms used to actually spend like four or five days in the hospital, and babies did too, and she would have to browbeat the nurses to get extra bottles because I was just always hungry. Um, You know, and I don't know how true that was, but I think, you know, I was one of those kids who was born, and they said, oh, you got a hollow leg, you know, really put it away. Um, And then I thought about, you know, what is like a compulsion, an obsession? And I and I actually looked at the definition for the first time in many, many years. And it was the domination of one's thoughts or feelings by a persistent idea, image, or desire. And I said, well, that's it. You know, the intrusion on my, and domination of my thoughts by eating about food, um, about the quantity of food, not necessarily the quality of food, not even necessarily the cleanliness of food, but just that I had to eat or I would fill in the blank. And um, my whole life I overate, and I had a really, this is such a common story, I had a really active childhood. Um, and uh, my family life was really good in Canada, and then we moved to Malibu, and it wasn't, my family life was still good because I was by the beach and I was super active. And um, but around 10, I started to notice that I didn't fit in with the other kids. Um, 
well, you know, it just came a little earlier than most because, you know, we all kind of feel that we don't fit in with the other kids. But I really felt like I didn't fit in with the other kids. And I thought it was my weight. So at 10, I asked my mom, could I go to the doctor and see why I'm fat? And my mom agreed. I was really hoping, you know, for a different response, but she said, sure. And um, when I look back, of course, at pictures, you know, I was fine. I was fine. But she was willing to take me, and he was willing to see me, like, on a weekly basis. And, like, I lost eight pounds. And that started the ball rolling. That really just started the whole thing and um you know the obsession of what I could and couldn't eat and uh my mother watching my food and by adolescence I had you know pretty much gotten chunky by today's standards I probably was even more fine but even by those standards I was fine um but I wasn't finding my mom, and I wasn't find. I had a little boyfriend when I was, like, 14, and his little brother said to me, he said, you know, you'd be really pretty if you weren't fat. And so maybe I wasn't fine to the norms of the day. And um, boom, that was my first walk into Weight Watchers when I was 14. Back, like, we had, like, literal passports. Nothing was digital. It was, like, these little folded-up things that you kept in a little plastic case like a passport and you had little stamps every time and it was like I think it was three bucks a week which was like dear at that point but you know I started losing the weight again and I got really you know pleasantly thin whatever it was and then I stopped going and then it came back and from the time, that moment, until well into my recovery here, for my entire life, I was either on a binge or I was on a diet. There was no in-between for my life. It was either constant eating, constant obsession, constant compulsion with food, or constant compulsion with dieting. And it's no way to live. Um... And I was really good at both of them. Um, the eating was the easy part. The compulsiveness on the dieting wasn't so hard because I tend to be a little on the OCD and I'm compulsive as a person. So I could go, you know, where a friend of mine, you know, you'd go on a diet with a friend for two weeks. I would go on for a program for like four months. And, um, and then I'd stop dieting because something would happen something would happen um and I would abandon the diet and start the binge and the weight would come on faster and this is like all our stories pretty much for this room and and through all of this I was thinking about it I never thought about what the food did for me I only ever thought about what food did to me. Um, and now that I have that perspective and now that I have a semblance of recovery, I look back and I think about 
on what the food did for me. And I had a really depressing adolescence. I watched my family's position in life fall apart. Um, we moved from Malibu to Santa Monica in eighth grade. A not a good time to move. Um, I had no friends. Um, we moved to a really dark apartment uh, in the summer. And my parents were bitter and angry with each other. It got better for them. Um, and by college, I got out, which got better for me. But, you know, it was, it was a really dark, dark adolescence. And I flunked pre-algebra, and I flunked Spanish 1 and 2. And I had 34 unexcused absences on my computer printout that my parents never even questioned me about, which I, to this day, they're dead, so I can't ask them, but I would have liked to have asked them, didn't you notice this? Didn't you wonder where I was? Um, but they had their own shit going on, and um, what could I do? And so I look back and I go, two things saved me. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I just saw somebody indicate what they were doing when they were ditching school, and um, I wasn't that cool. Um, uh, but um, music saved me. I was a musician, and I was in the orchestra, so I was surrounded by geeks, and they were geeks who came from very successful families. And I went, that's what I'd like. I'd like to be that. I'd like to be with the kids whose parents, like, remembered your name and you went over to their house and they, like, had football parties on Sundays and, and they were even Jewish and they did that. And it was like, and they had, like, cases of diet sodas. I mean, they, I wanted that. And I said, okay, so I'm going to get that. I'm going to be successful. I'm not going to live, I'm not going to do what my parents did. I'm going to survive this. And then the other thing is that food saved me. And while other kids may have been cutting school and doing something cool, I was going over to the Vaughns on 14th and um, Wilshire because I went to Lincoln Junior High, middle school now, and getting um, fried chicken and going back and ditching classes sitting on the steps to the music room outside where nobody bothered and campuses were open and I would write short stories and that became my life and I didn't know it would be until much later but you know the food was my friend and the work was my solace the stories were my solace and so that's what the food did for me and you know on Sundays when I'd have to deal with my parents and my mother and, and the, all the crap, you know, there were movies on TV, black and white movies all day long before cable. And I could get like a big tray of food and a TV in, old black and white TV in my room, and I'd go in my room and I'd eat and watch TV. And those movies also became my life and they also became my livelihood, part of my livelihood, knowing those movies. And so, you know, I look at what the food didn't probably saved me from an early drug addiction because there was plenty of that going around and may have saved me from killing myself. Um, you know, a number of years ago when um, the show 
you know, 13 Reasons Why was on. And I was really hooked on watching it. And I, all those things that happened to her, being humiliated by boys in school and feeling outside of things and making missteps and being new, all those things happened to me. And I went, I never thought of killing myself. And I, all of a sudden I had this great epiphany that why would I kill myself? There was always cheesecake. Um, as, as long as there was something to look forward to, like, you know, frozen cheesecake, then why kill yourself, right? So, I mean, that might have kept me alive. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll skip, you know, after, you know, after my eighth grade self. And so... The de disease just continued. And somewhere in college, I decided that I am going to be the most successful person ever. I'm never going to fail another class. I am never going to be fat again. And I'm going to be perfect. And what I discovered about being perfect years later is when you try to be perfect, you don't make a lot of friends. And I was able to walk out of college with a really fucked up boyfriend, but no friends. But... Through those years, I also noticed my disease ran into submission. Into submission. Remission. Remission. It'll never be in submission. Um, and that was when either boys liked me, or I had a position or a job that felt special, or when I was on cocaine. And the best was all three. And then I never went near food. So I spent several years knowing what it was like to be thin, hot, normal, all these things that I really liked. And then, but when I look back on it now, it was all, all those things were about status. You know, I had a boyfriend, I had a special job, I had a secret, you know, cocaine thing going on. It was really fun. And um, it made me feel special. And that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted out of life. That's why I ate. It's all through my diaries. It's all through my journals that I was looking through before I came here. I wanted to feel special. So what did I do? I went into the entertainment industry. Because that's where you'll feel special. And I always remember that um, there was there's a line, a spoken line in the musical Chicago that I always love to quote because it says, the She's just had a great performance, a star, and she says, the audience loves me, and I love the audience, and they love me for loving them, and I love them for loving me, and we all love each other, and that's because none of us got enough love in childhood, and that's showbiz, folks. And that's basically my experience of 30 years of being in the ind industry, is that I would say like 80% of the people above the line are filling a hole in their soul, and the other 20% are just crazy. And um, and so it was the perfect place for me to be because the yo-yos could continue and I could feel special until I wasn't. And the stakes got bigger, so the food got bigger and the food got freer. And so, you know, you've all heard about, you know, what they would have in the kitchen or what they would have at 
you know, on the stage or what they'd have. And I discovered that when I didn't feel special, because everybody else in the room was trying to feel special at the exact same time, um, I could go to the room and I could numb out. And that's when the disease just really hit. That's when there was food in my pockets all the time. Um, there were stains. I have all these great 90s clothes my daughter went through, and she goes, Mom, everything's stained. And I realized when you're a compulsive reader, everything you have is stained because you don't sit down at a table and eat. You're like eating on the run, you're eating the car, you're eating everything. It's just, it's really sad. Um, so I just, um, so I'll go to what happened. Because I didn't leave the business. But what happened? And what happened was I ran out of diets. I had lost a lot of weight in my mid four, in my early 40s and kept it off for about 10 years because I discovered like protein diets. And protein, and I really discovered that that's the way I should eat. And I was skating. Um, I took up figure skating when my daughter was a little girl because she took up figure skating and I didn't want to be a skate mom so I was skating like daily for hours and I was in great shape and then something happened and all the weight came tumbling back and I had, I'd run out of diets there was nothing left there was no program I hadn't been to um nothing I could do so I, I came wandering into Hill Street um one morning looking for another diet and there wasn't a diet but there was a really thin woman who had been a dancer who I said, that's going to be my sponsor because she's the thinnest woman in the room. And she had been a dancer and I'm going to be with her. Did not work for me. So six months after that. But what happened was I stumbled onto this book. And the, I'm waving the big book for the podcast. I stumbled onto this book and I fell onto page and I read it cover to cover and I love it more than anything. I love the old timey language. I love the literariness of it. I love the time travel, but I love sixty and sixty one page the page sixty and sixty one more than anything because that's where you learn that you're trying to run the show. And I was literally trying to run the show and run the show and running my life on self will. And bumping into my fellows. And, I mean, it was like, the, reading this was when I went, my whole life is explained in two pages written by a guy back in the 40s. How the hell did he know this? It must be true, because how else would I have found it? I mean, and, you know, and I'm angry and indignant and self-pitying and... So, uh, on the other hand, I'll be patient and generous and modest and self-sacrificing. And it's all because I want to run the show so I can be the special one in any room. And when you're trying to do that, you're going to piss off a lot of people. And I got fired from a fair number of jobs that I shouldn't have been fired from. Early in my career, when I was super humble, I was like the hottest thing going. And then I got kind of listened to what the agent said and lost all that humility. And then I wanted to be special again, so I kept working. And I got fired from a job that I thought was like, should have been a piece of cake. I didn't get fired. 
really I was replaced, and it really was more the project and the producer, but it felt like <clears throat> it was me again. So this time I came into the room crawling because I had fallen into a box of matza and I couldn't find my way out. And to this day, even though I like to practice the holidays, it's nothing I can have in my house. And I <coughs> remember coming into these rooms. Can you just water? I remember coming into these rooms after um, Passover, and everybody is saying, "Well, I ate a box of matzo. I ate a box of matzo." I'm just like, "Oh my gosh, you're not supposed to eat the whole box." <laughs> And there I was. I'd fallen into a box of matzo. And then <clears throat> I was on my knees. And I didn't know what to do. And God was there. And God was there because God gave me a sponsor who had also had a little professional problem. And we related on that level. And that's where our disease if I could speak for her, because she's in the room. Um, that's where her disease shows up the most, or showed up the most, was at work. And that's where my disease showed up the most, because when I wasn't working, I wasn't as much in my disease. And so once I'd found that, once I'd found a sponsor who would put up with my bullshit, um, things started to change. And I had uh, a spiritual awakening of the educational variety. Um, I had a spiritual awakening by doing the steps. And um, I always tell my sponsees, do them quickly. Don't linger on them. Do them imperfectly. Messily is good. Get them over with because until you get through your steps, you're not on the road to recovery. You know, you find... You find comfort in the rooms. You find solace in the rooms, but you find recovery when you've gotten through your steps. And I kind of jotted down, I think, the six biggest reasons why I am now standing here in front of you, able to wear a size 8, a size 10, usually, which is fine for me, and I'm not standing in line at Sidecar Donuts. Um, one, I was humbled. I was already on my knees when I came in, so it was really easy to say I'm powerless over the obsession. I was the de definition of powerless. Um, so I was humbled. I started telling the truth. Um, sometimes not about the food. That was really hard, because I was used from like the Weight Watchers era going in. I said, I don't know how I gained weight this week. Um, just. And I'm such a liar there. But everything else, I'm not anymore. I'm not anymore. Um, but I was a liar in everything else. And I found that when I was honest, when I was vulnerable with my feelings, when I was honest about things, or practiced restraint of pen and tongue, as they tell us to, that everything worked out much better. And that I would rather be happy than right. And that was new for me. Um, I, as I said, I found a sponsor who would look at things from the other person's perspective and say, well, could you have done this? Maybe you need to do this. Maybe you don't need to do this. 
and would come give me a perspective of understanding and empathy and and also hold my feet to the fire when I was at fault. Um, I learned to eat three meals a day. I learned to sit down for the first time in my life. And it probably took me years before that was habitual. And I live with a normie who at 12.30 eats lunch. You know, lunch was something I either skipped or had coffee because then... I would skip that meal, but then dinner would become something else, or I'd skip dinner, but then I'd have a giant breakfast. That was one diet I devised for myself, which was to not eat all day and then have the world's biggest breakfast, which just is really good for your, you know, insulin levels and your mental acuity. Um, Three meals that I sit down to, and I have two optional snacks, and that's my abstinence. Um, but the snacks have kind of gone by the wayside. Um, maybe around 4 o'clock, if I know I'm not eating dinner right away, I'll have something. But I really don't need them anymore. I think just because I'm older, I just don't need that much food. Um, I let go and I let God. I started to understand that everything was His plan in His time. And that takes a load off. That means I'm not always responsible. I don't always know what's going on in somebody else's head. I don't know why bad things are happening. They just are. Um, I learned to do service. I learned to take commitments at every meeting. Um, I even did committee work, which I despise, and learned to shut up. Um... I learned to look for service. Like now I find myself, I always wipe up the counter after I've washed my hands in a bathroom. I always wipe the counter after my coffee. Um, I pick up trash on the beach. I'm a really annoying person now. Um, And I let God decide if I was special or not. And he came back and said, I'm really not. (laughs) and he said but that's okay because I love you anyway you know I'm just another bozo on the bus but you know all those things created that spiritual awakening it ruined uh, organized religion for me these rooms and the whole AA mothership, the whole concept of this has ruined organized religion because I I thought I liked to practice my religion, but I don't like the hierarchy. I don't like that there's money involved. I don't like that it's not a, um, it's not just, you know, democracy. I don't, it's kind of, I don't find the spirituality in it that I used to when I would walk into temple, which is like a super bummer. Um, but I look what I, for what I find, but I've drawn closer to God. And I usually find my God in the mountains. I find God when I am alone walking in the mountains. And suddenly there's voices, not in a psychotic way, but suddenly there is a voice. And there is nature, and there are things that I can't explain that are just happen that 
that the spiritual, you know, it brought me to a spiritual place. And having a spiritual place in my soul now has lifted so much of the obsession. It's given me a, a place to go that's bigger than this world, that's bigger than the entertainment industry, although when you're in the heart of the industry, you don't think there's anything bigger than that or more important. And if you have a deadline, there's nothing more important than that. Really. Yeah, there is. Um, and I, that kind of inner peace allows me to walk through this life without bumping into my fellows and without the desire to be special. Um, is the obsession about food gone, though? Not really. I will, there are certain places where, like bakeries, where I will just spend forever looking at the window. And last night, um, I went out and had a really, really nice dinner at, in Playa Vista, which I've never, I went there to look for a at a used bicycle, and we ended up having dinner. It was fabulous and lovely with my husband. And all the way home, I debated stopping and buying a container of something cold and sweet. All the way home. And then I, but I knew I didn't need it. I knew I'd like used up whatever extra calories I had this week on my dinner. And I also knew that it was going back into the disease and really don't need it. And I do eat it from occasionally. I, I mean, I do. Um, I stare at, like when I'm checking out at a regular food store, I stare at the candies. And I think about it. But they're just not mine anymore. Which, when people used to get up here and say, I look at the food, but that's not your food. I go, how, what do you mean it's not my food? Of course it's my food. <laughs> Any food can be mine if I got a dollar in my pocket. But it really isn't my food anymore. I also think about that, how long has that ship been sitting there? <laughs> I mean, if I'm going to have, like, a piece of sweet brown stuff, I want fresh and the best now. Not something that's been sitting there forever. Um, and I can honestly say I haven't fallen into a matzo box in years and years. I couldn't tell you the last time I binged. I might soothe myself occasionally. I might have something that probably isn't best for me. But I have not binged. I don't, I wouldn't even think of hurting myself like that. Not even on Thanksgiving. So, uh, that's the solution I found in these rooms, and through doing the work and the reading, and a wonderful spiritual awakening, and all I can say is, if a hardcore foodie like me can find it, then anyone can find it. You just have to walk the path. So I think I'm going to wrap that up. And thank you for letting me share this tonight. Um, I finished early, right? Yeah, you have time for questions. Oh, I'll take questions. Just repeat the question into the mic. I sure will. Hi. Hi.
Can you talk about how you bring God into your creative practice and your writing? Oh. Your program? Oh my gosh. Well, program. Uh, how do I bring program into my uh, creative process and my writing? Um, I meditate before um, I work, um, and I didn't meditate before. Um, I pray. Then I pray that I'll have at least one decent idea. Um, and uh, I'm willing to make mistakes, which I wasn't before. Um, that is my biggest stumbling block, is still trying to walk that perfect stepping stone path of being perfect. And um, art is messy. Crafts are messy. And I can find my way through, and I've been doing it for a long time. But um, uh, So I would say those are the big three things. I mean, if you looked in my desk drawer where I work, there's a four today, there's a twelve little four today, there's a little uh, 12 steps, there's uh, some prayers tucked away in Hebrew, there's some prayers in English, there's the Lord's Prayer. Um, you know, I that's... And occasionally... I'll get lucky and get an idea that really feels like it didn't come from me. It's the coolest feeling in the world. Like, oh, hey, that'll work. That'll fix that problem. And it's like, wow, I didn't think of that. So, um, so yeah, it really is a big influence. Deanna. How did you decide what your actions would be? How did I decide what my abstinence would be? Well, that was easy. I didn't. Um, it was handed to me. It was through the um, I get the lineage that I I descend from. <laughs> I guess I I mean I, I think I have grandparents, grand sponsors, and great grand sponsors in this room right now, and, which you know when I qualify for that. I'll, Oh, anyway, um, let's not go there. So um, that's it was handed to me, and I I'm not, I do have to say that the dancer I picked first was immediately like, cut out all um, sugar and flour, and that didn't work for me. Telling me no was like it was going back on a diet. But my sponsor kept saying the road will get narrower, the road will get narrower, and it's gotten narrower. Um, how do you navigate social situations when it comes to food? How do I navigate social situations when it comes to food? I haven't for like two years. <laughs> yeah, which has been really good. Um, but um, I make sure, I mean, now I sound like Weight Watchers. I make sure I'm not hungry when I go. Um when I, I'm trying to remember, I limit to one plate or one item that I really want to eat. Um, and uh, I look at the menu before I go. Because 
mostly because I'll spend 30 minutes trying to make up what I, my mind what I want to eat. What, you know, what packs the best punch for the calories used to be the issue and all that stuff. And now, so I, I don't want to have to deal with that. I also only eat half of what I would have previously eaten. I think that's just a matter of age. I mean, if I order, I mean, like, I got six sandwiches, uh, salads from all the dieting. So I eat a sandwich, but I eat half. And I take the other half home, and then I know if, like, I'm in a restaurant or social, and then I know I got that half for tomorrow, which is, like, so exciting. <laughs> Did I, well, basically, how did I separate my food from my creative process? That's a really good question. I don't know. I, I think it's through the 12 steps through recovery because when I first started in graduate school, you know, my company in the lonely process of writing was, you know, was a bag of candy. Um, and uh, then I got worse and worse, but... Mo when I write and I'm enjoying my writing, I don't even think of eating. It was dealing with the people in my job. <laughs> you know, people are the problem. <laughs> um, that was the bigger issue. Um, so unless I'm like on a ridiculous deadline, I don't eat and write. And if I'm on a ridiculous deadline then I might eat half a sandwich. But even then, you know, if it's half a sandwich, I'll sit down for ten minutes and eat half a sandwich down in the kitchen. I just don't like the mess anymore. <laughs> and gentlemen back. Uh, you mentioned using it as your work in your industry as like a way of filling that God-sized hole. Do you still, is that still an issue for you or has that changed with recovery? Well, it's changed because I'm unemployed. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll repeat the question. Um, am I still trying to fill the God-sized hole in my soul with my work? Um, no. Because I've worked on Disney shows. So um, <laughs> um, I redefined what success was um, when I had a dry spell in when reality television came in and everything fell apart, and my career kind of went in the toilet, which it's done. Um, I redefined that after that that just working is success. Being paid to write is success. Um, are there projects that I would like to complete that are kind of like part of my ego? Yeah, but they're things I'd like to do. So, um, no, I... I yeah, just working. Now, interestingly, I'm on another dry spell. I've gotten, you know, the business is nuts right now. Um, you know, for writers, the jobs are, are hard to find. They're really hard when you get them. The, the staffs are really small. 
there's international competition. Um, so I could be eating over that, but I'm, I'm in acceptance over it. And that's my other 417 for <laughs> on acceptance <laughs> is my other favorite place. I think there's nothing I can do. Yeah, Natalie. How do I do my spirituality? How do I see my higher power? Is that kind of what you want? How do I see my higher? I ask that question myself a lot. Um, I'm kind of old school, kind of like the old movie, The Ten Commandments. I'm still stuck on that. <laughs> um, you know, God parting the Red Sea, all that great stuff. I still love that old time religion. Um, and, you know, heteronormative when I say he, just because that, that's just easy. Um, so that I'm traditional there, but where I really... So I've never been able to, like, some people see something. I don't see anything. It's, I honestly, and this is part of my religion, I think a higher power is too big to see. And then the Star Wars part of me says, you know, it flows through you, Obi-Wan. It's, you know, it's that the Force is with us, always with us. I don't think that was a mistake when he was writing that. Because um, that's what does, and that's why I see it in nature. Like, to me, the greatest miracle is a deciduous tree. You plant a tree next to your window, and when it's hot, it has leaves on it, and you get shade, and it's cool, and when it's cold, it loses its leaves, and you get sun. I mean, that, not in L.A., but other places. So, um, you know, to me, that's a small miracle. I couldn't explain it in science, but I still think it's a miracle that we have that. Um, so, no, I've never been able to see him, but I, but I feel it. Um, anything else? Yeah. You talk about, uh, you know, not being special anymore, or chasing being special. Um, did you have the experience that life feels boring with being a one-month man? Um. Slash peaceful. Like, those are kind of, it's a thin line, right? Like, do I experience? Uh, do I experience feeling like I'm just want another bozo on the bus? Is that what you're asking, or? Yeah, yeah. I'm above, and at this age, I'm above ground. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a first given. Um, I'm above ground, so there's that. Um, so that might be an age insight, too, because um, I've had friends pass away and, um, and my parents. And um, there was a point also when I realized, too, that God doesn't make mistakes. So I was put on this earth for a purpose and for many purposes, and all I can do is be useful. And um, I had a friend who, if you asked him, how are you doing? And he'd always say, um, eh, better than some, worse than others. And that's kind of a good place to live. Better than some, worse than others. Um, 
So, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be special anymore. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Um, it's been great. Thank you so much.